0: If something is important, repeat it. And so that truth is really, you know, that Christ has come to provide salvation for all mankind. There there are several concepts to this, and we'll get to our text in just a second, but there are several concepts to this, and the concepts of salvation. For instance, one of them is justification. Justification. And justification says that the sinner... Stands before God as the accused and is declared righteous. The sinner is standing before God as the accused and is declared righteous. This is very much a legal kind of of approach to salvation. Another one is redemption. The sinner stands before God as a slave and is granted freedom by a ransom. And there, the sinner is a slave to his sin. That men, women, and children really cannot escape their sin. They cannot ever do anything to free themselves of it and the power of it. But Christ makes it so the sinner stands before God as a slave and is granted freedom by ransom. And the ransom is the death of Christ. So that's another aspect of salvation is redemption. And then there's forgiveness. And this is the one that gets the most airtime, the most face time, the most talked about. And that is the sinner stands before God as a debtor. And the debt, having been paid, is forgotten. Forgiveness. So in this context, in this aspect of salvation here, the sinner stands before God as a debtor, owing a debt for his sin, and that debt has been paid and is forgotten. Another aspect is reconciliation. And this is what we're going to be studying and talking about today. Reconciliation. The sinner stands before God as an enemy and becomes a friend. And peace with God is made. And then finally, sonship. The sinner stands before God as a stranger and is made a son. I love that one. The sinner is, stands before God as a stranger and is made a son. Well, open up your Bibles here to the first, first, first chapter of Colossians. We're going to be in, in verse 19. And I'm reading up here from the New American Standard. This is what I'll be reading and teaching from today. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in the evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Beyond reproach. That word reconcile that is in this text here, right there. You, you you, see it right here, reconciled. He has now reconciled you. That word reconcile, perhaps some of us most frequently know and that word in the context of our bank statements because some of us have never made friends with our bank statement. It is our constant enemy. And, and so you understand, you'll look at reconciling your bank statement in a way you've never done before, you know, In in the context of the English, it means to cause, to be friendly again. Isn't that appropriate with your bank statement? To become friends again, to be in agreement, to bring back into harmony, and to make peace. But the Greek word for reconciliation has a fuller meaning. The Greek word for reconciliation means to change from enmity or disharmony to a friendship and harmony. It means, um, and a matter of fact, in the way that Paul uses this word, it goes even further. Huh? I didn't have it. In the way that Paul uses this word, it goes even further. Matter of fact, let me just go back. I did have that right. Here in Romans 5.10, he says, For if while we were yet enemies, enemies, enemies of God, we are reconciled to God. We are made friends. The enmity, the, 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 what is between us has been set aside. For if while we were enemies, we've been reconciled to God through the death of his son, and much more having been reconciled, we'll be saved by his life. Romans 5.10. And the way that Paul uses this word, really, in this text, he uses it uniquely in a way it's not usually used. He uses this word to talk about complete reconciliation. He uses this word in such a way that he talks about it, that reconciliation is not something where two parties have come to a table together and negotiate. And each of them contributes something to the table. Each of them contributes something to making peace. He uses this word in such a way where it is one-way reconciliation. One-way reconciliation. It's accomplished by one person or one party. And that's what Paul's terminology is getting at in this text. So instead, instead, these words, they stress that salvation is totally something that God does. And that man may either reject... Or accept through faith. He's not describing a situation where man comes to the table and he says, Okay, what are you bringing and what am I bringing? He's not even describing a situation where, let's say that some of us maybe would be comfortable and saying that God is driving the negotiations here. And God comes to the table and says, Okay, this is what I have to offer. What do you have to offer? That's not what he's bringing to the table at all. He is saying that God comes to the table, man comes forward... And God is the only one that offers anything because man has nothing to offer. And God says, there is one way for us to remove the enmity, there's one way for us to remove the conflict between us, and it is through your faith in Christ, death on the cross. It is all manward, it is not Godward at all. See, here it is, and through, and through him to reconcile all things back to God. Man is not reconciling anything to his side of the equation. It is only happening to God's side of the equation, reconciling all things back to God. God has never needed to be reconciled to man. He has always loved man. He has always had a plan to reconcile man to himself. And, it began, and he began describing it even in Genesis, in, in chapter 3, verse 9, where man has sinned against God. God didn't sin against man. Man sinned against God. And so even in Genesis 3, God is beginning to describe this reconciliation. He's looking forward to a day and a time when his son will come. And he says in that passage right there, he speaks about where the son will bruise the head of the serpent. And he speaks in that moment, or crush the head of the serpent and bruise his heel. He's speaking in that moment of reconciliation. He's speaking about reconciliation when he goes to Abraham and he draws him from a far and distant land into a new place. And he says to him, your descendants, as many as the stars, as many as the sea, on the sand on the seashore, your descendants will bless all nations. He's not talking about making them all Jewish. He's talking about Jesus coming through his descendants and making them, and giving them all the opportunity to be reconciled, redeemed, sons forgiven. That's what he's talking about. That is what God has always been about. It has always been him. And so by nature, man is separated from God. We, we see that in Scripture time and again. For um, Romans 3.23, where it speaks about all his sin fallen short of the, of, of the glory of God. By his deeds, man is alienated from God. And by his condition... He's dead in sin, spiritually dead in sin with no spiritual life at all. He's incapacitated and unable to deal with his problem. Now, catch that little point right there. Catch that little point right there, that man is unable to deal with his sin problem because he is spiritually dead. And therein is why men and women and children have exasperated themselves trying to fix it on their own. It is why men and women and children finally come to a place at the foot of the cross and they say I can't do this anymore because they have been trying to do something that they were spiritually dead and unable to do on their own it's just not possible matter of fact the apostle john says it like this in john chapter 1 verse 12 and 13 But as many as received him, speaking of Jesus, to them he gave them the right to become children of God. There's your sonship. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What is that passage saying? There's no way that man can become a son of God, a child of God. There's no way right there where man can save himself not through the will of flesh or the will of man, but the will of God. He comes to the table and says, I long to have you reconciled to me. I long to have you reconciled to me. And he says, to those who receive his name, to those who believe in his name, that happens. Now, catch this. We're talking about Reconciliation being where two parties, or in this case, man, is at odds with God. That, that it speaks about, even looking in our text and later on in the verse, and I'll refer to this in a moment as again, but you know, it says that man is alienated from God. And he says in verse 21 that he's hostile in mind toward God. And so there is a conflict that is happening here. And catch this. Paul is speaking about man being reconciled to God, and he speaks about peace in the context of reconciliation. We were enemies and aliens and separated from God, and mankind is determined to find a way to fix our sin problem our way. Now then, a lot of people might not say that they have a sin problem, but they want to feel good about themselves. They want to feel like there's this shame problem that they have, that there's a guilt problem that they have, that there's something that they can't fix inside of them. And so, mankind, because it's our nature, we fall toward worshiping any and everything else. And so, we worship creation. We worship trees and rocks and mountains and sun and the moon and the stars and we ascribe to them power that they do not have because they are not the creator, they are just another creation. We, we take the most powerful person in the tribe, in the room, in the nation, the one with the most money, we elevate them and we worship them. We worship ourselves, and we say, I can do this my way. I'm right, you're wrong. Whatever the case may be, we find a way to put ourselves in the picture, in the equation. And we are at odds with God because God says that there's no way for you to be in the picture. The only, way, the only way that this gets reconciled, the only way that you become a son, the only way that you're redeemed, you're justified, forgiven, is you're not in the picture and the only thing you have is Christ and the cross. And that's all there is. And mankind says, no, I won't have that. Mankind, we we look to science to explain our world and our existence and our destiny. And ultimately, where mankind wants to land is that men and women are inherently good. And therefore, we don't need God. They're inherently good. We don't need God. And because they're inherently good, then the problem with mankind is we need to better educate them. Start them young. Get them into preschool. Get them into, you know, early start. Start them young. If you give them a good education, they won't hurt each other. You'll take care of poverty. They won't kill the lions if you educate them. Every social ill of our generation can be solved through better education. We must have a real problem with education, huh? We must have never figured out really what it means to educate one another then because we've never, ever stopped hurting, lying, and cheating one another. we do not have the answer apart from christ we don't have the answer we are at god, at odds with god and we are in conflict with him so doesn't it make perfect sense that in this passage that paul speaks about peace verse 20 and through him to reconcile all things to himself having made peace reconciliation is two things that are apart Something's in between. Something is preventing them from coming together. And he says, Christ makes peace. Peace, the word peace means to join or to bind together that which has been separated. Now, doesn't that make perfect sense? If we are at odds with God, if mankind is at odds with God, do we not need to be joined or bind together? together with Him because we've been separated. It follows that peace is the opposite of division or dissension. It's the state of harmony. How is mankind in this passage? We see that we're reconciled. We see that we're given peace. And then the how. How does that happen? How do we come into this peace of God? Well, objects... And things, over the course of time, changes their meanings. Younger generations often don't know what the original sayings behind things were. There are certain words that we don't really know why we say them. And so, for instance, here's one of them. You know, here's one of them. Yeah, here we go. Thank you very much. I need that right there. Yeah, so here's this. This is a phone today. And so if I were to tell you to hang up your phone, why would I do that? Why wouldn't I push the button to end the call? Thank you very much. That's the most usefulness that phone's had all day, right? (laughs) Because that term comes from here where the receiver part of that phone had to be hung up to end the call. You would, hang, you would end the call by hanging up the phone. I bet you guys didn't know that, did you? you if you, you learn something, you should be excited. <laughs> and so you hang up the phone because you put the little, this little part right here, you put that on that little, that little part there, went on that part right there, and the phone call was over. You know, and there it is there, you know, right there. You hung up the phone, and that's how the call ended. That's what that term means. Well, for hundreds of years, and even today, again, the cross was a symbol of pain and torture and punishment and humiliation and death. And now in the Middle East, they have revived that image and that meaning of the cross anew. But the death of cross changed all that. So today, you can wear the cross on your fingers, lots of them too. You can put it on your body. You can wear it around your neck and really large too, that's small. You can put it on your t-shirt. There's lots of things you can do with the cross and it's not offensive because Christ took that meaning of execution and pain and torture from the cross and gave it the meaning of of grace, of forgiveness, of peace. What was once horrible and still is, Christ reinvigorated that symbol, those symbols, he reinvigorated it from something of horridness, of something unimaginable. I take that back. It is still unimaginable. He took something that was horribly terribly unimaginable, and he took it and made it wonderfully, thought, just mind-boggling, unimaginable. He took what was something that no one would want to be a part of because of the pain and the humiliation and the torture, and the ultimate end of it would be death. He took that, which was unimaginable, no one would want to be a part of it, and instead he took it and he made it into something that was, this is my only way out. This cross is the only thing that can save me. This cross brought me, brought me hope. This cross brought me sonship. This cross brought me redemption. It brought me reconciliation. It gave me something to look forward to. My, I sleep through the night. I have, I, I've, I've lost my shame. I've lost my guilt. And so instead of it being something that you would never ever want to have on you or around you, it's something that people proclaim gladly. Now, I will say, culture takes and co-ops it and tries to make it into nothing. But to us, to us, the cross is still something of beauty. It is only in Christ, it is only in the context of God that he can take something that is still being used by evil people in the Middle East right now for objects of humiliation, for objects of death. And it can still be something that we can sit here and say, It is an object of beauty. It's an object of hope. It's an object of reconciliation. Because on that cross, where he says it right here in verse 22, and yet he has now reconciled you in the fleshly body through death in order to present you blameless. I'm sorry, verse 23, 20, 20, I'm sorry. That he threw the blood on his cross. Through the blood on his cross. That is how we receive peace and are reconciled with God. Having been made peace through the blood on his cross. His death, his blood on that cross made the cross more than a form of execution. And now it is a vehicle of grace and freedom and forgiveness. So Jesus could shed his blood on the cross and die for you and I. An angel couldn't have done that. Only a man, and in this case, a perfect man. He shed his blood and he satisfied the Father. He, and this is where one of those religious terms comes into place. He propitiated, he satisfied God's need. He tore down the barrier and he allowed mankind to be reconciled to God. He made peace through the blood of his cross. And then the final result in verse 22 is that, He says that to present you holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Peace is not just the absence of strife. It describes a situation where two parties come together and there is nothing in between them anymore to cause friction. There's nothing in between them anymore to cause friction. In our situation with God, that strife came because our sin was in the way. That strife came because our sin kept us from being able to be reconciled to God. Here, he says that we are reconciled in such a way that we are blameless and beyond reproach. There's nothing in us between us and God where anyone ever can bring an accusation against man, woman, or child that has, been, that has believed by faith that Christ died for their sins. So, let me just tell it to you this way. Tell it to you this way. Let the darkness of this little sheet of paper represent the sin of our lives, the darkness of our hearts. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah says that all have wandered away, each to his own way. And this is our sin. And what has happened is that when we trust Christ, this say this is Christ, when we trust Christ, He takes our sin and he covers it with himself. And so that someday when we go before the father, the father will say, he'll call you forward. Don't you love being on the front row? You get I move move to the third row. I move. You get it, too. All right. Let's move (laughs) to the fourth row right here. Rich. So he'll say to them. Rich, so glad to see you today. Um, Let me look through here and he'll say, you know, uh, I see nothing. On your account. I see nothing here. You are blameless. You are beyond reproach. You are holy because Christ covered your sins and your account is blank and washed white as snow. Not because of anything rich has ever done, but because of what Christ did. On the cross with his shed blood. Are you here today and still an enemy of God? Are you at peace with him or are you separated from him? Are you able to say that someday that you'll stand before a holy and righteous God and be able to fi- be found blameless, without blame. No one can bring a charge against you and beyond reproach. It is possible that accusations, is it possible that accusations about you and your sin could still be brought against you before God? Or would you be able to say, like in my little illustration here, would you be able to say that all of your sins, have been washed away and are white. That your account is clear and there's nothing on it. This morning, you can know that for sure. This morning, the scripture even teaches that you can be certain of your stand before God. You can be certain of what he believes about you, what he thinks about you, where you will go after you die, and what he will say about you when you stand before him someday. You can be certain of that. This morning, you can do that as simply as just acknowledging that you are separated from him. Acknowledging that your sins stand between you and God, a holy God. Acknowledging that you need him, Christ, to step in and take care of your sin problem for you because you can't do it and you realize that. Acknowledging that only Jesus can do that. And by faith, you can believe that He died on the cross for your sins and that He paid your penalty. And in believing that, you can be made blameless beyond reproach and holy. You can become a son of the living God. You can be redeemed. You can be justified. You can be reconciled. Your sin, the guilt and the shame of your sin can be wiped away in all accusations against you. Can be cleared. Your debt would be paid by simply believing. This morning, if you've never done that before, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. I want you to have the opportunity. I'll give you just a moment. And really, there's nothing, there's nothing you have to sign. There's nothing you have to read. There's, I mean, it's just nothing. All it is is you, in the quietness of your heart, earnestly expressing your need for a Savior, and that Savior being Jesus. If you're in that place here today, I would long to give you that opportunity to make that statement to him. I'd long to give you that opportunity to become reconciled to God and have your sin removed so that you and him can have peace. Let me pray for you. Then I'll give you a few moments of silence and you can take care of that and just pray in your own heart, say in your own words that you need him and you want to take him as your savior. Father, this morning, we come to you and we are so grateful that you have approached us that you have you have pursued us and that you have made a way for us to become sons of the living god that you've made it possible for us to be able to be reconciled and forgiven and redeemed and today i pray that if there's anyone in this room who has never done that that they would take care of that today they would acknowledge their need for a savior They would acknowledge that Christ is that Savior, and by faith, they would believe in Him as their personal Savior. If you've never done that, in the quietness of your heart, in your own words, just talk to Christ, just talk to God about that right now.